Hello, welcome to The Natural Selection. This week, we're here to talk about cities. We're definitely a class, maybe a family, and in no particular order, I'm Nick. I'm Nick. And I'm Naomi. Hi. Hi, guys. Hello. How are we doing? So we've got, we've got an exciting episode ahead of us today. What's it about? Well, I think it's about cities. Oh, I've been to them. Some of us are, may even be in them right now. Are we all in the city? I'm in a city. I'm in a city. And I'm in a city. So I hope you guys brought some really sad news today. With the last couple of weeks, we haven't really had crippling news. Um, but we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, first, I wanted to say, great. I hope you guys enjoyed last week's episode on parasites. Um, and this week, we've got some exciting things to talk about. Human parasitism. Oh, no, I mean cities. Um, so we'll be talking about some of the urban adaptations of the natural world. But first, the news. Uh, Nick, Naomi, do you have anything exciting to say? I have not bad news again. That's great. Yeah. I um, also have not bad news. Mine is, I would say, decidedly neutral. Oh, My, I love neutral. Mine's painfully neutral. Mine almost has no consequence to anyone. Oh, that's just what we need and want. Well, you'll love this. So it was from the University of Sussex, uh, I think uh, Dr. Fernandez and Dr. Niven. Um, so they were looking at the brains of ants. Oh. Um, and what they found is, I don't know why this appealed to me so much, but they found out the left side of an ant's brain is for long-term memories and the right side of an ant's brain is for short-term memories. And it's called a lateralization of the brain. So what they did is um, they painted like a, I think just a bit of paper, blue. And they fed the ants with like sort of a pleasant substance. And so they would associate blue with a pleasant substance. And they tested its memory um, after, I think after 10 minutes, 10 hours and 24 hours um, to see how their brain would react. Uh, and they found that the long-term memories and short-term memories are stored on different sides of the brain. And this is, to their knowledge, the first evidence of memory lateralization outside of one specific family of bees, hmm. um, which also use social, just like these ants. Uh, they were they were wood ants. Um, and they were trying to think why that would be useful. Why would that be good? Why, why would you bother storing memories on different sides of the brain? But their theory is um, that by separating the sides of the brain, which do um, one uh, and the other, is that you can actually acquire new memories without interference of long-term memories. So by, uh, by sort of compartmentalizing the brain, it means they can actually improve their ability to form memories, which is when you've not got a very big brain might be quite important. Wow, well, cool. okay. They, just because they don't have a very big brain, Nick. No, no. Um, that's really interesting. Uh, so when we think of left brain and right brain, we think of like rational and creative and like sort of maybe popular science speak. 
Um, but for ants, they're, they're thinking like, hmm, what did I have for breakfast? And what was my aunt Sally's name again? Uh, is that what aunt so Sally? Basically, aunt, my <laughs> <laughs> I knew someday that me not saying aunt or aunt <laughs> properly um, would bite me. <laughs> so it's one of those days today. <laughs> um yeah, so Aunt Sally would be remembered on the left side, uh, but yeah, the uh, Aunt Breakfast would be remembered on the uh, on the right side of the brain. Great, cool. Uh, yeah. I told you it was of little to no consequence to anyone's life, but I bet it would be the sort of thing that you remember in thirty years. I think one, I think you're right, and also two, I think that it's the left side of my brain that will remember that. No, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it has to do with the blue paper that really is like i like can really vividly imagine the blue paper and then the ants like milling about it i don't know why that blue does something for me like i'm also wearing blue but that's not why well i'll remember you <laughs> <laughs> so can you beat that gnomes um yeah no <laughs> <laughs> um my news yeah is probably about as neutral um so mine is about how um certain types of carnivorous plants evolve their taste for meat mm. yeah so this study looked at um three species of closely related plants so the aquatic water wheel plant the venus flytrap and the sundew uh these um carnivorous plants all have moving traps they also looked at pitcher plants, and then they looked at species that weren't as closely related, um, and they sequenced the whole genome of these plants. And they found that in the group with the carnivorous plants, that the genome had been duplicated about 60 million years ago. Um, so they were linking this duplication um, to the freeing up of these genes that could then be used to uh, create these carnivorous parts, which is interesting. Um, so some of the things that they found was that they used like the genes that they would have used in roots to absorb nutrients from their prey. So it's interesting. It's cool. So yeah, with that one, it's sort of focusing on. So plants are more likely to duplicate their genomes, aren't they? But it's so, yeah. to do with if you have two copies of a gene, you only need one of them, so the other one can evolve into something else. Exactly. Yeah, it, it gives you like a lot more, a lot more room to experiment, I guess, and not be detrimental in your survival. Um, and because they duplicated, seem to be the entire genome, it gives you a huge range of options to to change around and follow up with. But yeah, there is some like uh, in in evolution, there are some big like um, big evolutionary changes that seem to have come from duplications of gene genomes or chromosomes as well. But yeah, this is, this is a cool um, find in plants. Hmm. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah. Pretty neutral as well, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> it is about, you know, uh, carnivorous plants, which are in my opinion, probably the you know most metal plants. So. Who doesn't love carnivorous plants? plants? Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> the things that eat them are, are eaten by them. Mm-hmm. I think there were some parts of controversy with it that maybe they needed to look further back to see if it was at this point that it evolved. But yeah. oh, and it was more to be done. Yes, exactly. And um, 
the pitcher plant seems to have a different origin for carnivory than these three species of plant. Mm. They're quite fun pitcher plants. They're named after the jug pitcher rather than a picture on the wall. But they, uh, yeah, you can buy them for your bathroom and they eat all your flies. Cool. Mm. That's great to know. We've got a few flies that are, have entered our quarantine unit um, that I think maybe we could also invite in a little pitcher plant if we could find one. Oh, I think I left a pitcher plant in our London flat. I wonder yeah. what happened to it. It really could have come in handy. <laughs> Somewhere in London, there are a lot of dead flies. <laughs> or a dead plant. <laughs> or a dead plant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Those are two really neutral news stories. Thank you, guys. So I call us yeah. Switzerland. <laughs> Well, then I think then we're ready to move on to the main event. Today, we're talking about cities, and we'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. Now, we're here to talk about cities and the natural world. So, today, um, (laughs) I don't know, I don't know. Well, guys, um, do we have anything interesting about cities? They're like full of people and cars and buildings. It's not very natural. Um, what do you have to say? So I've been looking up things. I have a little quiz for you. So humans and animals, like animals play a big part in our culture and mythology. Can you guys think of any cities named after animals? you think there'd be a few, wouldn't you? Yeah, I found one from each of our respective countries, although admittedly the one in Ireland might not be a city. And it's only sort of named after animals. Oh. But the one from my country, uh, I'm from England, and there's a city called Ely. Um, Can you guess what animal that's named after? An eel? Yeah. So Ely um, is a city just south of, like, I think it's south of Cambridge, but it's in Cambridgeshire. Um, and it was the centre of where they would, uh, the eel fisheries, where they would fish for eels and then sell them. So Ely literally means, like, full of eels. It's a bit Ely. <laughs> oh, cool. I think I passed through there on the train yeah. to Cambridge. Yeah. Um, in America, uh, Nick, your, your homeland, can mm-hmm. you think of any cities named after an animal? It's a very famous one. A very famous one. It holds the distinction of being a a noun, a verb, and a place. So you can just use that one word um, an odd number of times, and it will always form a sentence. Ah, buffalo. Yeah, buffalo. So there is some argument whether it is actually named after buffalo. Um, but they think there's a good chance it is. It could also be um, uh, sort of uh, a false cognate, but there's no evidence that it is. So it could just be named after after the animal. Um, now, the hardest one, Naomi, for you, is um, there's a town in Connacht, uh, which is the province you're from, uh-huh. uh, which is named after an animal where it's found Lots of them there, so they named the place after something about them. Oh, it's a good test of your Irish here. Oh, it's in it's in Irish, is it? It is. Um, is it like quinine or something like rabbit? No, 
It's not. Uh, I can give you another clue if you would like. It's the, where a TV show we both just watched is set. Oh, I haven't watched that yet. Oh. Um, I haven't watched it yet. No, I so I don't know. Oh, it's Sligo. Sligo. Oh, what's it? What's that named after? So Sligo means the place with many shellfish. Uh-huh. It's the shell area. Okay, interesting. Huh. So uh, that was probably the settlement was there, and there was many, many shellfish. Uh, so that's how it's got its name. It's named after their shells. Um, but there are a few other quite famous ones. There's one in the Netherlands where, um, Nick, you are. This, mm-hmm. I have to do a bit of digging. Um, so if you can guess this one, and it is a city, you will get serious brownie points. It begins with an A. The only two, there are two A cities I can think of off the top of my head in the Netherlands, and yeah. I don't think it's Amsterdam, so I'm going to say Antwerp. It's not. Isn't Antwerp in Belgium? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As it came out of my mouth, I was like, mm, no. <laughs> it's uh, Alkmaar. What? Alkmaar. It's a, uh, it's a city in the Netherlands, which uh, is named after uh, the Lake of Orcs. Uh, A-U-K or Alks. I'm oh. not sure. But it's a bird that looks a bit like a penguin, but isn't a penguin. Huh. They're big, aren't they? They're quite big, yeah. Um, but there are some more famous ones. So um, there's one, Singapore. Do you guys know what Singapore translates as? No. Oh, does it have to do with, is it butterflies? It's not. It's actually the city of lions. Lions? Yes, despite the fact that lions have never lived there. Oh. Um, well. Interestingly, poor uh, is a Sanskrit word meaning city, which got me thinking because I was like, and there, uh, when I was reading about it, so there's a common suffix uh, in Sanskrit meaning city. So I was like, is there any other cities named after it? Which made me think, well, what other cities do I know ending in poor? And the only, can you guys think of another city ending in poor? No? That's all right. <laughs> uh, well, the only other city I could think of ending in poor was Nagpur, um, which is in India. Uh, and that got me thinking because I do know that the Naga, do you guys know what the Naga yes. is? It's a snake. Yeah. So I was looking into it, and Nagpur is named after the river Nag, uh, which they think is named after the Nag people, which were suggested that they were half serpent, half human, because the Naga are these sort of revered uh, spirits in Hinduism, uh, where they're sort of half people, half snake. Uh, interestingly, female uh, Naga, often called Nagi or Nagini, okay. uh, so you might recognize that name. Um, so I think there's a good chance that Nagpur might be Snake City. Great linguistic deductive work, Nick. And there was yeah. one more that I found after extensive research, which is the capital of Uganda. Oh, oh. I know this one's mean. And it's named after a sort of a, a deer-related animal. And it sounds a bit like what we might call a deer-related animal. It came from the hill where the Impala are. And the capital of uh, Uganda is Kampala. Oh, an antelope. Yeah. An African antelope. Yeah. Cool. This is really showing my like lack of geography knowledge. Yeah, there's a reason we all did biology. Um, but yeah, those were all of the cities. I thought there would be more. I thought this would be quite a fruitful thing. But in the end, those were all of the cities that I could find, um, which are named after animals. There's not that many that are very obvious at all. It's interesting, though. Yeah, I, I would have thought there would have been more as well. But I suppose roots, like cities can often be quite old as well. And like roots of words 
Yeah. What's interesting to me about the first three that you named, at least the ones from our respective countries, I know that there are not buffalo in New York in that area anymore. And I'm guessing that there probably aren't that many eels in Ely, but I don't know about shellfish in Sligo. So maybe that's still a holdout. It's on the sea, isn't it? Yeah. I'm but also it could be like then. from from the like, a lot of that region is like limestoney. So it could be like from fossily kind of seashells as well. Cause that's why it could be named. Mm-hmm. That was a great game, Nick. Thank you for, for that was a fun trip around the world. That's all right. So you might enjoy that while we're in lockdown. Yeah. Imagining what it's like out there. You got any good facts about animals? Um, yeah. So I was thinking about how like animals sort of cope with living in urban environments. Um, so I was looking at some studies that looked at um, differences between species in the in urban environments and rural areas. So there's one I found that looked at the Barbados bullfinch, and they found that um, in urban areas they're better at problem solving than their rural friends. Uh, so they gave them like uh, boxes they had to open or they had to pull a drawer, um, and they were better if they came from an urban environment. But interestingly, they showed more neophobia which means that they were more afraid of novel things than their um, rural um, counterparts. Mm. That's interesting. Yep. And similarly, raccoons show a similar um, trend. In another study I found, they tested raccoons getting access into these bins that had locks on them. And in rural areas, none of the raccoons were able to do it. But in urban areas, about 80% could do it. They could um, get so into locked sure. bins. Yeah, they they were able to like push it over and then use gravity to uh, like hit the latch. Basically, I think that's how they did it. That's cool. Holy crap! Yeah, raccoons are very seem to be a lot of the ones I was looking up are like about how raccoons are really good at like sneaking into things. So, uh, Naomi, you're you're from a city, right? Yes. Yeah, and I, I'm from like a big town, and and you say like that that makes you more intelligent. Is that right? Yeah. So Nick, Nick, are you are you from a city or? Well, um, well, Nick. Um, now that you ask, uh, no, I'm not. Oh, well, that's that's funny. Uh, I'm from so I'm strange. from the country. Oh. I'm, uh, I'm I'm what you might call a country bumpkin. Have you ever have you ever struggled to get in your bins? Well, I was just thinking. I don't even know if I could get into a locked bin. <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> That's why I asked. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this research, this research holds true then. This is, um... Even for humans. It's yeah. not often that you can translate directly from an animal model study to a human study, but in this case, it seems to be true. <laughs> I really didn't know where you were going with that, Nick. I was like, what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, country bumpkin. Um, but another one I found was um, Japanese crows. They, um, so they've discovered that if they drop walnuts or nuts into the road um, and wait for the car, um, cars to go by, they'll be able to get the open nut from the um, road. But they um, took it a step further. They actually realized that it's best to do it at a crosswalk 
because then they can get access when the light goes green and they can cross the road, get the nut, and then start it all over again. I thought originally you were going to say uh, they went a step further. They realized it's better if they uh, also leave the road. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. yeah, so that was cool. Wow. That one. I've, my whole life I've spent thinking Japanese crows are mostly dumb and malicious because I was attacked by a, by a bunch of them once. Um, but now I know that they're very smart and we're probably seeing something in me that I haven't yet seen in myself. <laughs> Maybe a resemblance to a walnut? I... <laughs> <laughs> they probably were trying to push me under traffic. They, I mean, I was... <laughs> Who knows? That's quite cool, though, that they've uh, learned that crosswalks are a thing. Yeah, yeah. There's apparently a few other species that have been able to do that as well, but they learned that they can cross. They can either use the crosswalk to cross the road, or they can, like, access the food that they drop at the crosswalk. Hmm. Hmm. Cool. I have something today. Oh. About cities. In fact, I have two sort of connected things. And I thought I'd spice it up a little by them not being about animals, but about one of the other kingdoms. Oh. Um, so the first thing I want to bring up is, yeah, plants. <gasps> um, I have plants, I know. Shocker. Natural selection. Diversifying. Um, the first thing that I wanted to bring up is birding, which is animals, not plants. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> we often think about, like, well, what are some things we can do in the city that connect us to nature? Or what are some things even we could do from our houses that connect us to nature? And one of the first things that I started doing during this quarantine and a lot of people that I know got into birding uh, because there are birds everywhere, even in the middle of the city. And you can see them and they're always moving around, and but they don't move too fast. And sometimes you can catch them with your eyes and then write down what you see. So birding is cool. But can I also present the idea brought up by a cool project called, get ready for a huge list of nouns here, cool project called the New York City Street Tree Map. That's a bunch of nouns um, and one adjective. Uh, so in the New York City Street Tree Map, it's a project covering the different boroughs of New York, basically reporting what trees are where on a big interactive map that's actually a really beautiful website. Uh, that you can navigate and find and look at the information about different trees. So they've mapped about 700,000 trees across the different boroughs in New York, um, all across Manhattan and in the Bronx and in Queens and Brooklyn and I think Staten Island, Staten Island as well. Um, in, Man in Manhattan alone, there's over 65,000 trees marked down on the street tree map, the New York City street tree map, which uh, I think is a really awesome way of getting people involved with the less seen or less appreciated nature around them, especially in a place like New York, where you have some interesting animals, maybe some pigeons and rats, but also things like peregrine falcons and the occasional fox and raccoon, even living on Manhattan, uh, but also a bunch of trees that have been there for a long, long time and have really interesting histories. So explore the tree-map.nycgovparks.org sometime if you're looking for something fun to do on a crazy, boring day. I will do. Encountered this before. The New York City street tree map. Not specifically the New York City one, but this project. And I was sent to Hyde Park, and they were doing this project. They were bringing it over from the states in Hyde Park. Um, and what was interesting is uh, I don't have the numbers, and I, but they 
part of this project was they assessed the economic impact that a tree has. And a tree existing in a city has a positive economic impact. I think it's about $20,000 uh, beneficial to the, um, to the uh, economy of a city per tree. Wow. Uh, in, yeah, in the way it provides shade and green and happiness and also cleaner air. Cool. Um, so, yeah, that's quite fun. That's so cool. I'm going to look those up after this. I have a quiz for you guys regarding the New York City street tree map. Uh, the New York City street tree map. Um, what do you think the most populous tree in across the boroughs of New York is? I'm going to put my London hat on. Is it a plane tree? It's a plane tree. London plane. The most populous tree on Manhattan. <laughs> I don't know that many tree species. I'm letting myself down. Um, I'm just going to say sycamore. Hmm, okay. Is it a smelly tree? Uh, I can't answer that question. I don't know. Does it have heaven in the name? No. Oh, I don't know then. It's not a sycamore <laughs> either. Um, it's a thornless honey locust. Oh, I was going to guess oh. that. Yeah, yeah? Yeah. Oh, so close. <laughs> cool, though. So I know that the London plane tree is not a natural tree. For those who live in a city and want to identify it, it has the bark that looks like a poorly rendered video game. It sort of looks like cheap camouflage. Um, but I, I think they're a cult of it. I think they're sort of a, um, a bread tree that um, is particularly resistant to pollution, which is why it's called the London plane tree, because it could survive in London's pollution, which is, yeah, probably why it's in New York as well. Uh, so, Naomi, you might have written the best sentence that anyone's ever written, which was BBC Earth hamster eating candles. Yes. Um, yeah, so it was from um, an episode of BBC Earth Seven Worlds, and it was about uh, these hamsters living in the cemetery. Um, it's actually a really good video. You should watch it. The hamster is, is great. Um, and that they eat candles to get nutrients because they're really full of oils. Okay. That's interesting to me because hamsters is one of those animals that I just cannot imagine in the wild. Yeah, it, it, the, the video is definitely worth a watch. Um, like, if its cheeks are puffed out, it's like, you know, it's sashaying, you know, it's going for it. It's great. And then it gets stuck in the candle holder. Yeah. It's probably yeah. the funniest thing to happen in the cemetery. Yeah, I would suspect so, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I just thought it was an interesting um, way that animals kind of, you know, get benefits from. Or like how they make the most of our spread in urban areas. I know cemeteries are quite an interesting place for wildlife in London. So I went bird ringing in a cemetery for the reason that it's um, it's land that can't be developed. So it's left and a lot of the cemeteries got full over 100 years ago. So no mourners really go there anymore. So they're sort of left as places um, where the trees can grow and animals are generally left uninterrupted. Uh, so I went bird ringing in one um, which is interesting. Some found some quite nice ones, including the smallest bird in the UK, which is the uh, the gold's crest. Ah, They're cool. so cute looking. Yeah, it weighs less than a ten pence. Um, I have some I have some update for you guys. Uh, the reason, according to the New York City Trees: A Field Guide for the Metropolitan Area book, 
um, that the honey, the thornless honey locust is the most popular tree in Manhattan is because it withstands pollution, drought, and poor soil. And in full leaf, the tree is said to provide a lovely dappled shade. Hmm. Oh, nice. That's my favorite type of shade. Yeah, dappled. Um, I just looked it up as well, and those hamsters are in Vienna. Ah, yeah. Vienna. Um, I was thinking about animals you associate with cities. Do you guys like a bit of pigeon? Yeah, sure. They're all right. <laughs> <laughs> I like a pigeon. Lukewarm, lukewarm audience reaction there on the pigeons, yeah. Nick. That's very really good. I feel like there was one of those things that there's a quote that if uh, someone, I can't remember who said this, but it was like, if dandelions were difficult to grow, uh, everyone would want them in their garden. Um, and I feel the same with pigeons. Everyone sort of says they're ugly, but they have the most beautiful iridescent patterns on their chests. So they're sort of multicolored. They look like an oil spill. Like they're, yeah, they're, they're quite pleasing to look at animal quite a lot of the time. And if they were rare, we'd probably seek them out. Um, but do you know what animal they came from? What are they in the wild? Like they're, well, okay, go ahead. Wood pigeons? They're they're not wood pigeons, actually. They are rock doves. Ah. Which you can still find in the wild in the UK. I think you can find them up in Scotland. Um, and do you know where rock doves live? Rocks. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. Um, they live on cliff faces on the sea. Um, and can you think what might resemble a cliff face to a pigeon? A big Go old on. building. A big old building! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So essentially, we're just building them um, cliff faces to live in, which is why they're so comfortable sort of roosting on buildings and little ledges, because that's where they would live in the wild. Um, But it does beg the question, why pigeons? Why not? Why not another animal? Why why are pigeons so successful? So there are a few things. Do you guys know what pigeons have as an advantage over other animals? Besides, like, no fear. well, the they, speed? it's actually more interesting than that, I think, is that one of them is uh, they are one of the largest birds which can take off without a run up. Oh, okay. uh, so the other smaller birds that can do that, um, uh, they can just bully them and sort of kick them out of town. Uh, but it means that they don't need to run along to take off, which, yeah, if you're in crowded streets, having to do that is a lot more difficult. Um, so they'd be less likely to get out. The other thing is their takeoff angle is surprisingly steep for a bird of their size. So if you ever seen a duck take off, a duck isn't that much bigger than a pigeon. But yeah, a duck will run along and then have a very, very shallow takeoff. Um, whereas a pigeon from standing will just jump up in the air and sort of fly, not quite vertically, but not far off. And this can cause problems for ducks because ducks can get caught in city streets and they can't take off. Uh, we actually had to rescue a duck when I worked in London um, where it got caught on a main road. And because um, the road wasn't long enough for it to take off, it got stuck. And we had to take it to uh, the RSPCA um, as pigeons don't have that problem. Um, also looked at rats. Do you guys like rats? Love them. Mm-hmm. Oh, mixed bag oh. on rats there. Mixed bag on rats. <laughs> Um, so they're quite prevalent in our city. The ones in Europe are mainly brown rats. If you go to places like India, they're much more common to be black rats. But uh, we have the brown rats uh, overwhelmingly in Europe. Um, and they are the ancestors of all lab rats. So lab rats have a really interesting history. They were originally brown rats, which you would find uh, in most cities. Um, but then they got captured 
um, and they were used for rat baiting. And they were bred. And basically, rat baiting is where you would lock rats in a pit and release a terrier. And people, uh, I think usually Victorians, uh, would bet on how long it would take the dog to kill all of the rats. No. Yeah, it was a it was a blood sport, and obviously this eventually became illegal. Um, but this is where our stock for lab rats came from. They were previously the rats being used in rat baiting. Uh, they were then used in uh, uh, laboratories um, and and yeah, basically used for um, medical testing. Um, and they were the first animal to be domesticated solely for the purpose of experimentation. That's pretty grim history. It is. So we tend to think of rats being bad news for humans. But I think, yeah, I think we've we've more than got our revenge on, on them in that regard. Yeah. Um, uh, cool. Thanks for that rat info. Uh, pigeon and rat info. I'm glad that that made it into our city's discussion. Um, I have another tree fact for you guys. Maybe yeah. you've heard of. Uh, it's a tree. It's a famous tree. So narrow your list down now because there's not many of those um but it has a name and it lived in athens georgia in the u.s um and it's famous for being known as the tree that owns itself um back in the early 1900s the person who owned the land that this beautiful big tree grew on uh, i think that it's an oak a white oak uh, just decided that he loved this tree so much. Yeah, to he, be fair, if it was a black oak, he probably couldn't have property in Georgia. Oh. Hey, it's your country. <laughs> I know. It's bad. It's bad. Um, there's a little plaque uh, in front of the tree now that says, for and in consideration of the great love I bear this tree and the great desire I have for its protection, for all time I convey entire possession of itself and all land within eight feet of the tree on all sides. Um, and the city of Athens, they respect this deed, essentially, uh, and the tree owns itself in its little plot of land. Some bad news, the tree blew over and died in 1942. But some good news, a seed from that original tree was planted on the little plot of land that it owned and is now known as the son of the tree that owned itself and still owns itself today. So there's some good news there. Round out the story. I only brought it up because you know it's a tree in a city, but also it's really like a property rights is a really human uh, Western city sort of vibe thing. So I thought I'd drop that in here because when else will it come up? I like that some cities have become associated with animals. So one that I particularly found was um, Austin in Texas. Nick, you look like you have a fleck of recognition. I've heard of Austin. Do you know what animal uh, they've sort of now adopted almost as their mascot? The only one I could think of is like a longhorn steer. You'd think so being Texas, but actually um, it's a bat. A bat? Yeah, I think they're called the Mexican tailed bats. Um, but normally they migrate, but the ones in Austin don't. And there's a huge colony under one of their bridges um, where 1.5 million bats live under this bridge. Holy cannoli. Wow. Um, and each night uh, they take flight. And it's a huge tourist attraction where people then stand on this bridge and wait for the bats to come out and fly out. Um, and it's a huge advantage to the city because they eat all the insect pests. So they eat things like mosquitoes, uh, reducing the amount of pests in the cities. 
Uh, the only downside is the guano, uh, which can become problematic. Cool. That's awesome. Hmm. New reason to go to Austin. Yeah. And um, so I was um, researching starlings in America. So they're not native to America. They're native to Europe. Um, but they were brought over to America by an ornithologist who's really into Shakespeare. He wanted to get all of Shakespeare's birds into Central Park. And I think it was also the idea of um, getting um, more European species in as well, so to make people feel at home. And um, so they introduced about 60 starlings in 1890 uh, to Central Park. Um, and now there's starlings everywhere in the US. Um, do you guys have a guess of how many um, estimated starlings there are now in the US? Are there more than there are bats in Austin? Yes. Oh, God. I think it's ridiculous. Isn't it like 100 million? Yeah, 200 million. Yeah. That started from these, like, about 60 or 100 starlings that were brought wow. into New York. Yeah. I just thought it was like is that they wanted it to be like Shakespeare's animals. So they, like, brought in these birds. And then, yeah, because I suppose as well, like, a lot of things in cities is that people like the idea of, like, bringing in like either horticulture or animals but not really thinking about I guess the like larger impacts mm. starlings can also be associated with some cities I know there's some quite famous flocks uh there's one in Brighton uh where they come and flock over the pier and they make all those amazing shapes like they, those big clouds of starlings and they found that some yes excellent word and um some of them to go to Brighton will fly all the way from Germany uh, just to go in that uh, flock and then fly away again. Uh, hmm. But they're also very famous in Rome. Uh, in Rome, they they flock there and they do the memorations uh, over the city skyline of Rome. Cool. Ooh. Awesome. One of the big problems with starlings is uh, they flock to these cities um, and they can create a huge mess because uh, essentially they poo all over them, which is Rome spends thousands and thousands, maybe millions of euros uh, sorting out every year. Well, um, I have some animals that actually provide benefit um, to the city that they live in. So this research that I found showed that insects um, clean up waste. So they clean up litter and food waste. Um, they, they clean up eat, litter? Yeah, well, like food litter. I don't know if they eat non-food items. I'm sure they probably do eat some non-food. Not like a beer can. Yeah, probably, probably not. Um, they may try and consume what's inside, but but not the actual can. Um, but yeah, so they eat um, this waste, and they discovered so they did some experiments leaving like amounts of food. So they tried to calculate how much they eat, and they found. Oh, sorry, I didn't get it. Oh yeah, so they consume two thousand one hundred pounds, nine hundred and fifty kilograms, um, or in an easier way to think about it, sixty thousand hot tubs, um, in a year. That's, that's disgusting yeah well it in a way though it's better than like rats coming in to eat them so it's like a, a balance but they're not they're not sure what like repercussions this like junk food will have on on these animals but they haven't really found anything yet but yeah. i guess it's sort of a benefit that they're providing by cleaning up um and i guess yeah it's stopping something like rats that can be like carry pests and disease yeah that's cool respect to the insects and spiders doing that mm. 
awesome talk today, guys, about cities. Um, that brings us to the end of another exciting episode of The Natural Selection. Tune in next week where we talk about camouflage, but good luck finding us. Just kidding. You can find us on Spotify and the web. So that's a goodbye from Nick. Goodbye. Goodbye from Naomi. Goodbye. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. What do you have to say? (laughs) (laughs) Hold on. I got it. I got it.